This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. When Moshe Rabbeinu sees this snare burning, he sees this unusual mara, this unusual sight, this fire is burning within a bush, and yet it's not consuming it. He walks over to it and he says, let me look, let me investigate, let me see what this is. And at that point, Hashem appears to Moshe Rabbeinu, and Hashem says to Moshe, Ani Hashem, I am Hashem. But then Hashem continues, Va'erel Avram el Yitzhak el Yaakov, I appeared to Avram, to Yitzhak and Yaakov, Bekel Shakai, with the name of Kel Shakai, Ushmi Hashem lo nadati lehem. But the name Hashem, I did not tell them. Now Rashi explains that what Hashem is saying here is something very profound. What Hashem is saying to Moshe Rabbeinu is that you are going to get to experience something that the Ovos didn't experience. They knew me as Kel Shakai. They knew me by the name of Kel. They knew me by that name. The name Hashem they never knew. Now Rashi explains that doesn't mean they didn't know the name Hashem. They referred to Hashem with the name Adon Akol, Adon Hashem. So they knew that name. And Rashi says what it means is that I didn't reveal myself to them that way. They didn't recognize me that way. The midas amita shali, the true mida of myself, says Hashem, the others never knew. Why? Because I promised them. I promised them that the children would have a land that would be wide and vast, but they never got to experience the fulfillment of that promise. They knew me as Kel Shakai, but they never knew me as Hashem. Why? Because I promised them, but I never fulfilled it to them. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, are going to get to experience Hashem in a way that the others couldn't. Why? Because you're going to be there when I redeem the Jewish people. You're going to be there when I bring the Jewish people to the land of Israel. You're going to get to experience Hashem in a way that the others didn't. You have an opportunity that they didn't. And that's how Rashi explains this Pasuk. And if you think about this Rashi, I believe it's rather difficult to understand. <clears throat> because what Rashi is saying is that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to experience something that the Ovos couldn't. You see, Hashem promised the Ovos that they would, their children would get such a good land, but they never really got to see it. So they didn't really recognize Hashem. They didn't really experience Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu, <clears throat> you're going to have a very different experience because you're going to actually see the fulfillment, and therefore you'll see the name Hashem in actuality, you'll experience Hashem on a different level. Now, let me explain to you why I find this very difficult to to understand. There's a concept in the English language called faith. Faith is a concept of trust. Do you have faith? Do you have faith in a person? Do you have faith in an institution? So, for instance, let's say I write a check to you. Do you accept the check? Now, what's a check? A check is a promise to pay. If there are no funds in my bank account, if I'm not worth the money, the piece of paper is worthless. So do you accept my check? So it depends who I am. It depends how much money. If I'm buying you know, a used car for $1,000, you probably would take my check. If it's a $25,000 check, I, I'm not so sure you'd take it. The point is that having faith in the person is based on the circumstances, based on what he's really worth how much you trust the person. However, all of us have no problem accepting dollar bills. Now, a dollar bill is also a promissory note. It's really a guarantee of the government, backed originally by gold, now backed by the uh, 
production of the United States economy, but all it is is a promise to pay. It's a promise that the government will make good on the face value of this dollar bill. Yet if I pull out a stack of 20s, I pull out a stack of 100s, no one questions it. Why? Because we know the value of it, we recognize the currency, and no one questions it. So here's the problem with this Rashi. Hashem was the one who promised Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov that their children were going to get the land of Israel. Did they question Hashem? Hashem is very, very good for the money. Hashem is very, very faithful. The others knew Hashem, and they knew that that which Hashem said Hashem was going to do. So what do you mean, Moshe, you have an opportunity that the others didn't because they didn't get to experience my redeeming the Jewish people. They didn't get to see the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael. It doesn't matter that full faith, when Hashem promised that that would be to them, it was the equivalent of it happening, far more than our faith in the U.S. dollar bill. So the question is, what does it mean that Moshe Benu, you have an opportunity to experience Hashem, to be with Hashem in a way that the others didn't? If Hashem promised them it's as good as if it's done, that full faith in Hashem, what does it mean that Moshe Benu, you get to experience Hashem like they didn't because you're going to see it? It sounds very difficult to understand what Rashi is sharing with us. And I'd like to see if, in fact, we can understand what this Rashi is sharing with us and what, in fact, these concepts mean. And to do that, I'd like to focus on a, actually two mitzvahs that are very, very difficult to apply. There are many, many mitzvahs in the Torah that were pretty straightforward and pretty easy to work on. The Torah tells me to put on tefillin. Basically, I put on tefillin. Torah tells me to keep kosher. I'll keep kosher. And Torah tells me to put mezuzahs on my doorpost. I put mezuzahs on my doorpost. However, there are two mitzvahs that are very, very difficult to both apply as well as understand. And those two mitzvahs are, number one, having awe of Hashem, yiras Hashem, and number two, avas Hashem, loving Hashem. So here's the problem. Tefillin I get. I look in Shulchan Aruch, I study how it's made. There are ten halachas in If I don't know the halachas, I go to a sofa who knows the halachas. I buy a pair of tefillin, I study the laws, and I put it on. If I don't know what tzitzits are about, I open the book, and I study the halachas, and I put on tzitzits. Mezuzah, kosher, all of the various mitzvahs in the Torah are pretty straightforward. But how does one come to fear Hashem? How does one come to love Hashem? What's the process? Clearly it's not instinctive. If it were just natural, if you wake up in the morning and you just naturally have an awe of Hashem, then it wouldn't be a mitzvah. You don't need a commandment. You just It's just a reality. Clearly loving Hashem is something that requires working on, something that requires focus. But here's the problem. What do you do? How do you reach this level called Yeras Hashem, awe of Hashem, Avas Hashem, love of Hashem? How do you work on these things? <clears throat> what do you do? So Gemara Brachas tells us what to do. The Pasuk in Kriyashma that we say twice a day, you should love Hashem with all of your heart. What is the plurality? What does it mean, all of your hearts? It's plural, double. It's not Bechol, with all of your lave, with all of your singular. It's with all of your hearts. Bishnei Yitzrecha, with your two Yetzes, with your two nature. Be'yetzetov, be'yetzahara. Gemara tells us that if you want to come to love Hashem, you have to love Hashem both with your Yetzir Tov as well as your Yetzir Hara, with your good inclination and your evil inclination. Now to frame that in words that we can understand, 
the Rishonim explained to us that Hashem created every human being with two vastly different parts. Part of me is an Hashem that's pure, that's holy, that's noble. Part of me is the animal instincts in Nefesh Bahami. And what the Gemara is saying is, serve Hashem with both of those parts. Serve Hashem with your neshama, <clears throat> serve Hashem with your nefesh abahami, with your animal instincts. That's how you come to love Hashem. Okay, now, when you want to talk about a uh, Jew answering a question with a question, and then <clears throat> that question not even having an answer, well, help. Meaning to say, <clears throat> if my goal over here is trying to learn how to love Hashem, the Gemara tells me, well, love Hashem with both of your natures, both of your inclinations. <clears throat> Number one, how does one love Hashem with both inclinations? My neshama, I get it. Meaning, my neshama comes from under the Kisya Kavod. My neshama is pure, holy. My neshama only desires a relationship with Hashem. My neshama desires to do everything that's good, that's proper. And my neshama deeply craves Hashem's presence and certainly to serve Hashem with my neshama, to love Hashem with my neshama, is obvious, it's clear. But how do you love Hashem with your nefesh abahami, with your animal instincts? Animal instincts are drives, appetites, urges. There's no wisdom to them. There's no understanding to them. When a human being is hungry, I'm hungry. I need. But that's a very animalistic feeling. <clears throat> it's a sensation and if you go into the animal kingdom and you study the appetites, the urges, the inclinations, you'll see there's no forethought, there's no wisdom, they're just base hungers. So how do you love Hashem with your appetites, your urges, and how does that bring you to Avas Hashem? And I'd like to see if we can focus on understanding the answer to this Gemara, because I believe it'll help us with the general issue called learning to love Hashem, learning to fear Hashem, and hopefully it will open up to us a better understanding of the human dynamics. And to open this up, let me share with you an interesting observation. We have many, many mitzvahs in the Torah, some of which are readily understood, and some of which are not so readily understood. Let me share with you one that should be rather perplexing. It's forbidden for human beings to benefit from this world without a blessing. Before I eat food, before I drink beverages, before I consume anything, I make a blessing. Now, if you think about it, it's a little bit strange. Number one, it's not exactly the most holy thing a human being ever does. Meaning to say, uh, as an example, when I was a first-year base medrash, Rabbi Wiener was, uh, was a Rebbe. Rabbi Wiener had a very sharp sense of humor. And the guys, first year base manager, 18, 19 year olds, aren't, aren't always as mature as they should be. And right after the shear, there was Chazar Sashir, a review of the shear. And there was one fellow one day during Chazar Sashir, during the review of shear, uh, was out by the snack machine eating a huge Danish. Rabbi Wiener looks at him and says, I see that you're Chazaring. A play on the word pig, as in you're picking out Chazar Sashir, reviewing shear. But here's the point. If you want to define the greatness of a human, if you want to find nobility within the person, eating is not the most noble act. Eating is akin to any other animal in the wild kingdom. All animals eat. All animals consume. It's not exactly the most holy endeavor. It's not exactly the most lofty endeavor. I remember very clearly when the Rishiva Zatzal, in his older years, 
we as Talmudim were always in the house, always trying to learn, always trying to, whether it be in learning directly or Ashkafa. And when the Rashiva was already older, the Rebetzin was already makbid that guys not be at the table when the Rashiva Zatzal was eating. And many a time I heard the Rebetzin say, you should view your Rebbe as a Malach Lukim. When he's eating, it's a Maisa Bahima. You shouldn't see your Rebbe that way. Now it's an interesting Hargasha, because if you view your Rebbe as a Malach Hashem, eating is something that's very... Now you have to do it to, to exist. It's not wrong in any sense. Obviously it's needed, it's necessary, it should be done. But it's certainly not a very holy act. It's certainly not a great act. It's anything. It's part of basically keeping human being alive. There are a lot of things we do. Some things we do publicly, some things we do privately. Eating is not exactly something that one should be proud of. It's something I do, period. So why is it that we use the name Hashem every single time we eat? Meaning if you sit down to blueberries and then a banana, if you eat a piece of cake and then you drink something, on each one you make a separate bracha. You're going to make blessings time after time after time, a hundred throughout the day, and it's forbidden to consume food without making a blessing. It's forbidden to be nana from this world without making a bracha. And if you don't really hear what I'm asking, let's make it clear and obvious. Imagine you invite me to your house for a meal, and you serve a delicious banquet, and as each course is brought out, I say the words, oh, thank you. Oh, thank you for the soup. Oh, and thank you for the chicken. Oh, and the, the potatoes. Thank you for the potatoes. Oh, and thank you for the lemonade. Oh, and thank you for the bread. Oh, and thank you for the salad. And th- Enough. I get it. You said thanks. Yechazal obligate us to thank Hashem on each and every separate one. Now, granted, there are certain shiurim, meaning when you make a brach on a certain type of food, there's a limit to how many brachas you make. You make it for that sitting. It covers that basic time that you're eating. But again, if you're going to eat different foods, you're going to make different brachas at different times. <clears throat> but the point is <clears throat> that you're supposed to thank Hashem again and again and again, and it's not something to be taken lightly. If you use the name Hashem in vain, it's a losa say in the Torah. If you decide, <clears throat> let's say you're not obligated in a bracha, and you want to make a bracha on your own. You decide, I want to add to it. I want to add another bracha. You violated a losa, say. Lotis Hashem Hashem Lashav. Using Hashem's name in vain is a love. Yechazal felt that it was so important that every single thing that we eat, we make a blessing on, that not only didn't they consider it a bracha levatala, they said you have to do it on everything, and it sounds a little bit difficult to understand. And to understand why, in fact, Chazal obligated us in this way, I'd like to share with you how, in fact, one comes to Yerushalayim and how one comes to Avas Hashem. The Kochve Or explains to us that there are two distinct parts to each. The concept called Yerush Hashem means awe of Hashem, recognizing the majesty and the glory of Hashem. And there are two dimensions, two parts to that. The first is something called Yerush Onish. Yerush Onish means fear of the punishment a very clear recognition that at the end of my days I will answer to Hashem for what I did good, for what I did bad, but knowing, being aware that every action of my life, every thought, every conversation, everything that I was involved in, I will be asked, why? Why did you do it? Did you accomplish something? Did you grow from it? 
Did people benefit from it? <clears throat> was it good? Was it bad? Was it ugly? <clears throat> was it great? And being aware that every action in my life I will answer is a great concept of Yiras Hashem. By the way, a little piece of advice. Don't get into road rage in our day and age. Don't do it. Don't do it because it's foolish, but don't do it because you're going to get caught. Last night, a bus decided that I should move more quickly. I was moving at the speed limit, and I didn't feel I should move more quickly than that because it was unsafe. He starts honking and honking. In any case, I come close to the light, and I pull to the right lane, and he goes through the red light. A bus full of people. If I were in a different mood, I would have pulled out my little video camera that every human being carries today, and I would have filmed the bus and the red light, and he would have lost his job. Don't get involved in road rage today because everyone has video cameras in their pocket. Everyone has recording devices. Don't do it because it's going to be known and it's going to be seen. And that little device has a very real Musr concept to us. If I knew that every action of my life is being videotaped, but that means to say the audio, the video, as well as the machshava track, what's going on in my heart, everything is being recorded, and when I'm done my job here, all of it will be replayed, and every element inspected, weighed, and measured, if I understood that, it would deeply affect the way I act, deeply affect the way I conduct myself. And that is one element of Yira Hashem, the awe of Hashem, knowing that Hashem watches, knowing that Hashem is the judge, knowing that at the end of my days, I will answer to Hashem. But there's a whole other aspect to Yira Hashem that has nothing to do with reward and punishment. That second aspect is something called Yira Saromamus, awe of the majesty, the glory, the grandeur of Hashem. And if you'd like to understand that part, I'll share with you an interesting observation. Gravity is known as a weak force. Physicists call it a weak force because it's not really a strong force. Now, if you'd ask me, it's pretty strong because, uh, you know, the planet Earth is kept in existence where it is by gravity. Meaning to say, if weren't for gravity, here's the sun, here's the Earth, the Earth would just sort of like float away into space, right? It would just kind of like be whatever, But gravity is a force that's so powerful that it keeps an entire planet where it's supposed to be. And as a matter of fact, gravity doesn't just keep the planet where it's supposed to be. Gravity keeps everything on the planet where it's supposed to be. I remember when the first lunar modules were being discussed and there were various pictures that were being sent back. And I remember the astronauts drinking orange juice. But they were having a light moment, so what they did was they allowed the orange juice out of the container. And you saw the orange juice floating, floating in the air. The little, I don't know what you say, a little piece of juice, a little kind of liquid of juice. You see, out there in space, away from the body of the earth, there was much less gravitational force. Hence, the orange juice, instead of falling and splattering, just floated. And living without gravity would be very different. Gravity on our planet, based on proximity, based on mass, is a very powerful force. It's such a powerful force that, again, it keeps the planet where it's supposed to be, keeps objects where they're supposed to be as well. But if you'd like to understand this force called gravity, what happens when it's unchecked? What would happen if the force of gravity, 
in this planet had no other force, the stronger forces, keeping it in check. Would you like to know what happened? The entire planet Earth would instantly crumble into the size of a marble. You see, science now understands that atoms, quarks, everything that we know as solid really isn't solid at all. Scientists now tell us that if you were to take an atom and take the nucleus of the atom and imagine that the nucleus of the atom was the size of a tennis ball, then the electrons spinning around would be at a distance of five miles. Because while an atom may seem like a very solid particle, actually what it is is mostly space. And what we know as solid and strong really is basically vacuum. And if you were to take all of the matter in planet Earth and allow it to just collapse into itself, if gravity were allowed to function totally and completely, all of the matter would become the size of a marble. Now why is that relevant? Because in the known universe there are things apparently that are somewhat like that. There's an entity called a black hole. Now what's a black hole? So scientists explain to us that if our own sun stopped burning. In other words, meaning to say the sun, which is 865,000 miles wide, is a constant furnace of explosions of nuclear energy, and there's so much energy, so much strength, and it's always in that expanded state. Let's say it ran out of fuel, it would, because it no longer had the fuel to remain expanded, it would collapse to an area of four miles. If you had a star that were four times, 20 times the size of a sun, and it collapsed, it would become a black hole. Now, what is a black hole? A black hole is something that's not so large, but has such a powerful gravitational force that nothing known to man can escape it. Not light, not time, not energy, not matter, and anything that comes within its range is sucked into it. And scientists approximate that if you would imagine a huge star as it becomes a black hole, instantly everything turns from matter to almost non-existence. If you imagine a hunk of steel the size of Mount Everest, in a heartbeat, it instantly becomes the size of a grain of sand. Because gravity is such a powerful inward pull, and there's such a force inwards, that everything just collapses, everything just becomes into nothing. Every single galaxy in the known universe has at its center black holes, and these black holes kind of work like huge vacuum cleaners, and they keep things in check. Now, why is that relevant to us? Because one of the things that a human being should do every once in a while is contemplate. When you walk out into the night, and you study the night sky, you should see blazing powerful suns, hundreds, millions of times more powerful than our own sun, but because they're so distant, we see them as mere twinkling of stars. And you should be aware of quasars, you should be aware of other galaxies, and you should be aware that there are 100 billion stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. Each one of those stars, as powerful as our sun, or more powerful, each one of those stars spread across this vast expanse known as the Milky Way galaxy, and you should know that our galaxy is not the only galaxy in the known universe. There are approximately 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. And when you think about the fact that every one of them is controlled, every one in perfect balance, 
where the gravity of each one perfectly matches the expanding forces, the weak forces versus the strong forces, and you think about the wide, vast expanse of the known universe, you should have an awesome sense of yira. What does yira mean? Awe. If this is the creation, what does it tell me about my creator? Before this existed, there was nothing. There were no molecules, no quarks, no subatomic particles. Hashem said, Vayihi, and everything that my eye sees came into being. And that understanding is mind-boggling. That understanding is beyond human comprehension. Hashem said, it should be, and everything that my eye sees and everything that I'm aware of came into existence. And if this is the creation, what does it tell me about my Creator? And when you think about this, then you dwell upon the forces that are consistent and running throughout the cosmos, you begin to get a certain inkling of, wow, this is astonishing. There is a Creator who brought this all into being with wisdom, with power. It's astonishing. But you see, that has nothing to do with Yerus Onish. I'm not afraid of God because he's going to hit me over the head with a stick. I'm not afraid of God because he's going to punish me. I'm in awe of the grandeur, the majesty, the brilliance of my Creator. I sit back with a sense of astonishment, a sense of, and that is Yiras Hashem. That is awe of Hashem. And that's the two elements of Yiras Hashem, Number one, Yiras Onish, awareness that there's reward and punishment. Hence, there's a sense of trepidation within me because I stand in front of my Creator. And the second element, Yiras Aromamus, awe of the majesty, the glory of Hashem. But the Kochveyor explains to us that as there are two elements to Yiras Hashem, fear of Hashem, so too there are two elements to Aavas Hashem, to loving Hashem. The first element to Aavas Hashem is based on seeing the goodness of Hashem. And seeing the goodness of Hashem means just looking at the world and seeing the vast care, forethought, and concern that God put into this world for the good of people, for the good of man, to share with others. And when you study this world, and you see foods, aromas, sights, beauty, when you see so many features that didn't need to be there, so many parts of the world that were created for man's enjoyment, not for utilitarian function, not to benefit man in a functional manner, but just for man's enjoyment, you begin to understand how good Hashem is. When you look at an ocean and you see beauty, magnificent beauty, when you see a landscape and it just takes your heart, when you study the animal kingdom, and you see such symmetry, such beauty, it captures your heart and brings you to a sense of love. And it's something that requires studying, something that requires understanding. And a Jew has to contemplate this world. And a Jew has to contemplate what he is involved in and what he benefits from. And the next time you sit down to a meal, next time you sit down to an apple or a pear, a banana, a mango, you should think about the following. How did this come into being? Forget the flavor, forget the aroma, forget the texture. How did it come to be? 
And as you know, it's a rather complex system. Aside from simply the water cycle and what's needed to bring rain and what's needed for a seed to grow, let's focus in on one simple part, one small little part of what it's needed to bring an apple to your table. As you know, the primary business of life in the wild is survival and reproduction. Hashem implanted into the animal kingdom, into every Nefesh Bahami, all of the instincts for its survival, and all of the instincts for the survival of the species, hence reproduction. So I understand how animals remain. I understand how Elsie the cow meets Boris the cow. They mate and have a calf. In the animal kingdom, I understand reproduction. Hashem put in instincts into the animals. They wish, they desire, they have a drive to procreate. Hence, they find a mate. Hence, you have the next generation. And that part's not so hard to understand. But in the plant kingdom, it becomes a little more complex. You see, a cherry tree doesn't say, hmm, I would like to really meet a very fine, nice other cherry tree. And as a matter of fact, it doesn't really need another cherry tree to reproduce. But it does need something for it to become <clears throat> pollinated. <clears throat> you see, any of the fruit trees that we benefit from <clears throat> require pollinators, require an outside force to come and take the pollen <clears throat> from <clears throat> one part of the tree to another part of the flower, <clears throat> requires something to bring the process into existence. And pollinators are those that basically allow for the reproduction. In scientific terms, it's called sexual reproduction because there is one part of the plant called the male, the other part the female, but the point is that a pollinator is needed. And if you think about it, it's rather astonishing because you see the bee is a very effective pollinator, but it don't really care about pollination. But the bee does really care about the nectar that the flower offers. And what the bee is seeking is the pollen. You see, the bee is largely colorblind. The bee is not attracted by the beautiful colors, nor even by the shapes. What the bee is attracted to is the smell. There's an odor that the flower emits, and that odor tells the bee that there is nectar to be found there. The bee will fly in to get the nectar, and on its body it will against its own knowledge, and certainly not intending, it'll get sprayed with pollen, and then it goes to the next flower, and it brings the pollen from one flower to the next, one to the next, one to the next, and the bee is a very effective pollinator. So too is the hummingbird. What's interesting about the hummingbird is that it has a very fine bill, and the flowers are deep. So it's only the hummingbird that can dig all the way in and get the nectar because only the hummingbird is an effective pollinator because only it has the equipment to capture the pollen and bring it to the other flowers, whereas other insects don't, and therefore the nectar is not available to other pollinators, other insects, because they will not do an effective job. It's only available specifically to the hummingbird with a very long bill, and you can watch the hummingbird hover and you could watch it pollinate. Now it's interesting because there are about 200,000 pollinators, different types, different species, different <clears throat> formations. Each flower, <clears throat> each type of plant requires a different pollinator, <clears throat> each one perfectly matched. And if you begin thinking about it, <clears throat> it's rather complex, rather interesting, 
The bee has on its leg something known as a pollen basket. On its leg is a basket to catch the pollen, so that when it goes in to gather the nectar, the pollen falls into the basket, so that it's accessible and available, that when it goes to the next flower, it drops the pollen, not thinking about it, not being aware of it, but it does it, and it causes reproduction. It allows these flowers to now flourish, and now the seeds to become fertilized, and now the fruits can grow, and we could eat our apples, our cherries, our cucumbers, our wheat, that all of our foods which require pollination. Now that's very interesting, and it's very complex and very involved. But what about at night? What happens in the nighttime? Now interestingly enough, there are pollinators that work strictly at night, one of which is known as the bat. Now we've discussed this previously, that one of the greatest features in creation is something called sight. We take sight for granted. We assume that we look and we see. But scientists now understand that sight is one of the most complex systems in existence. You see, my eye is affected by light. Light enters my eye, hits the back of the eye, and then is translated into electrical signals. It's sent along the optic nerve. And then in the brain, a picture is created. I don't see Tommy swinging a bat. That image hits the retina. It's then translated into various different signals. Those signals are sent to the brain. And in my brain, an image is recreated. To me, it looks instantaneous. It looks like it's immediate, but it's not at all. And would you like to know why this is especially interesting? Because there are many animals that don't use sight as their primary means of finding things. The killer whale is an amazing animal with a 12-pound brain. The shark has a brain that weighs 1.2 ounces. The killer whale has a brain that weighs 12 pounds. And do you know why? Because it uses echolocation. It sends out very clear signals. They bounce back to it, and it interprets the signals and creates an image based on what it now receives. So it'll send out high-frequency pitches in a very rapid rate, and the bounce of it coming back in its brain, it interprets, and it's able to tell what it's looking at. Would you like to know why that's a significant fact? Because the killer whale eats salmon. The killer whale cannot live on jellyfish. Jellyfish are basically almost nothing. They have no meat to them, no substance. A salmon is very thick. But how does a killer whale under the sea in areas that are largely, there's no sight because there's no light, how could it tell whether it's a salmon or a jellyfish? It uses something called echolocation. What it does is it sends out these chirps, ultra-high frequency chirps, and then it reads back the signal. You see, a salmon has a very large swim bladder. A swim bladder is what allows it to float or to sink based on where it wants to be. Something heavier than water sinks right to the bottom. Within the inside of the salmon is a large sack that can be filled at will with gas to be expanded or contracted. If the fish wants to go to the surface, it fills it with air, with gas, and it rises up, hence it's lighter than water. If it wants to sink down to the bottom, it contracts, it lets the air out, it becomes heavier than water, and instantly dives down. But that swim bladder has to be the right size to fit the density of the fish. 
A jellyfish doesn't need a swim bladder. There's nothing to it. A light fish needs a very small swim bladder. The Chinook salmon, which is the key food of the okra, the killer whale, has a swim bladder that's huge because it's a highly muscular, highly dense fish. And killer whales at a clip can send out these signals, read right into the essence of the salmon, see the size of the swim bladder by getting back the bouncing and reading kind of like an ultrasound and will tell the baby inside. Well, the okra has that instantly all the time, and it's able to tell jellyfish or salmon, <clears throat> halibut or tuna, based on the size of the swim bladder. Now, that's interesting, and it shows us some of the wonders of Hashem's world, but what about when you see that in an animal that's not 7,000 pounds, that doesn't have a brain <laughs> that weighs 12 pounds? <clears throat> what if you find that type of sophisticated mechanism in an animal that's no bigger than your thumb? Well, try a nectar bat. The nectar bat flies at night. At night, typically, it's very, very dark. And the nectar bat does not rely on sight to find what it's looking for. The nectar bat does not hunt flies, does not really live on insects. Primarily, it's fed based on nectar. And it seeks out those flowers that have nectar. It will drink the nectar. And that's its largest source of food for it. But here's the problem. In the tropical jungle at night, it's pitch black. Even if there is a moon, the coverage of the foliage is so thick, you can't see a thing. There is no light. So how does the bat find amongst these millions of different things out there, how does it find the right leaf, the right flower that has a nectar? Well, just so happens to be the the exact flower that requires the pollination from the nectar bat has something called a sound beacon leaf. Its leaves are not formed as a typical flat leaf, an elephant leaf. Its leaf is formed in the shape of a cone, but it's a highly specific cone. You see, when the bat sends out its high-frequency ultrasound, that leaf captures the sound and bounces it back, much like a light beacon. If you have a light and there's a reflector behind it, it multiplies the light and directs it. Well, these leaves are formed in just such a fashion. They're like a cup, so that when the bat's noises hit it, it reflects it back, magnifies it, and the bat is able to tell the exact signal and is able to read which is the flower which contains the nectar. The nectar bat will then go into the flower. It's perfectly suited. Its apparatus is perfectly suited for the flower. And as soon as it hits that flower, the flower releases its pollen. It gets into the bat's fur. The bat goes to the next flower, pollinates, and the system goes on and on. But here's where things get very interesting. The nectar bat has a frequency range that's so highly modulated that it's only effective at 12 feet. You see, it's such a sophisticated system that it can't send it out for 200 feet because the bouncing back would be so diminished it wouldn't be able to hear. It's only effective at a very short distance. So how does it know where these sound beacon, these flowers are? Well, it happens to be as dusk begins settling on the tropics, these flowers emit a particular odor. 
a very garlicky sort of, to us it would be a disgusting odor, but something that's irresistible to the bats. And the bats can smell it from a distance, a vast, vast distance, and they begin sniffing it, they begin smelling it, and they come closer and closer. And then when they're about in range of about 12 feet, where their radar is effective, they send the radar signals out, hits the sound beacon, comes back to it, it knows exactly where to go, hones in, gets there, gets a nectar, pollinates, and leaves. But there's one more step that you have to understand. You see, leaves themselves would normally absorb sound, would absorb sounds. These leaves have to be specially coated with wax, a special wax coating to allow them to be highly sound bouncing, so that when the sound hits it, it bounces off, not just directed, not just reflected, but perfectly shaped so that the sound goes back the maximum distance and every one of these leaves are coated with a particular type of wax that is specific to allow the sound to bounce. Now here's the question. Have you ever given an IQ test to a leaf? Uh, Tell me, who's the president of the United States of America? Uh, Tell me, uh, what country do you live in? A leaf is an inanimate object. But when you begin to see the vast wisdom the incredible calculations, the forethought, the brilliance that went into this. And it's 200,000 different type of pollinators, each one perfectly suited, and all of this so that you can enjoy your apple, your banana, your pear, your mango. You begin to see something that's incredible. Oh my goodness, what Hashem has done for us to enjoy. What Hashem has done for mankind to benefit. And you begin to get an eye glimpse to what Avas Hashem, love of Hashem is. I love Hashem, why? Because Hashem is so great, so magnanimous, so generous, and instinctively, naturally, I love Hashem. That's what the Rambam says. The Rambam says the formula to come to Yiras Hashem, to Avas Hashem, is to study the creation. When you see the vastness, when you see the complex systems, when you see the wonder of it, you're immediately filled with a sense of awe. But more than just awe, you're filled with love. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. I see the majesty of my Creator, and I'm attracted to the goodness, the kindliness, the chesed of my Creator. And studying the global picture is a wondrous way of coming to Avaz Hashem. But there's another step to this. The next step is when I actually bite into that apple. You see, it's very nice to open a National Geographic and to read. And the reason why I mention both of these in the same schmooze is because both of those facts, from the black holes to the tropical bats, were in the same issue of National Geographic. And when you know that every single issue has niflos abori, wonders of Hashem's world that are amazing, you begin to get it. It's a wide, vast, incredible world. But while that's very moving and very powerful, it's when you sit down to the apple and you taste the sweetness and you smell the aroma and you have the sensation of the texture and then you benefit from it that it's a very different experience. You see, as there are two parts to Yerushalayim, there's Yerush Aromas, the awe, majesty of Hashem, and then there's the fear of punishment, so too to Avas Hashem, to loving Hashem, there are two separate components. There's looking at the global picture, seeing landscapes, seeing goodness of Hashem, and saying, wow, what a mative, what a giver Hashem is, what a brilliant, giving, kind creator. 
But then there's when I sit down and receive the benefit. When I eat the apple, when I bite into the orange, and when I chew into that mango, and I taste the flavor, and I benefit from it, that brings me to a new level of Avas Hashem. <clears throat> Why? <clears throat> because that Avas Hashem is much more tangible, much more real. It's wonderful to read about the wonders of Hashem's creation, <clears throat> but when I directly benefit from it, <clears throat> that's another level, and that's a second level of Avas Hashem, <clears throat> the <clears throat> recognizing the direct goodness that I receive. Now, with all of this, I have one question to ask. And I believe that this question is rather profound and rather, rather important. I get it. I see the majesty of Hashem's world. I see the power of Hashem. And I even recognize the fact that Hashem created me for a reason. Hashem did not put in such vast wisdom, forethought, and care just for whatever. Hashem didn't create this complex being called the human for whatever, hang out, and just, you know, make some money, spend the money, you know, whatever, have a kid or two, and then die, whatever. Clearly Hashem had a reason. And clearly Hashem has a mission and a purpose for me. And I even get it. At the end of my days, I'll be richly rewarded for what I've done great, and I'll be have to answer for what I've done wrong. I get it all. Yiras Hashem, Avas Hashem, I get it all. Okay, so here's the question. How is it possible for you and I to sin? How is it possible? I understand Hashem is going to ask me, what did I do with my time? How can I sit there and fizzle away my time on, on stupidity? I know that every word that I speak, I'm going to be held accountable for. How could I speak Lashon Hara? How could I be nasty? How could I be deceitful? How could I lie? I know Hashem runs the world. <clears throat> I know that Hashem's in charge of everything. How is it possible that you and I sin? If I get it, if I know it, if I understand that Hashem is present, how is it possible that I violate the will of Hashem when Hashem is right here watching me? It makes no sense. It's absolutely, completely inexplicable. How do you understand how you and I have free will? How do you understand how we sin? Would you like to know the answer to this question? The answer is, we know and we don't know. We, we kind of know, 2%, 10%, 5%, 8%, 10%. We grow, we work, maybe we start at 5%, we grip better at 6%. We work some more, we get to 10%. Spend a few more years, get to 12%. But it's always in this hazy, misty, kind of, I'm not sure kind of way. And if you're not sure that I'm right, I'll give you a very simple example. I want you to imagine the following. Imagine that I'm speaking somewhere, and there's an older man in the back, and he's very moved. And he comes over to me afterwards, and he says, you know, Rabbi, I'm so moved by you. Say, I want to learn more. So we make up to have a Seder. And once a week, I learn with him, and he starts getting into it, and he starts keeping mitzvahs. He wasn't from at all. He had no connection to Judaism, but he starts getting into things more and more, and he starts getting involved, and he starts putting on tefillin, and after a while, tzitzit, and Shabbos, and kosher, and he becomes a full-fledged from Jew. Wonderful. Tremendous. One day he says to me, you know something, Rabbi? I've been thinking about this. <clears throat> what you've done for me is wonderful. I had no knowledge of my heritage. I had no knowledge of Judaism. And, and now I'm keeping <clears throat> all the mitzvahs. It's great. But here's the problem. I'm 70 years of age. And there's no way in the world that I could acquire <clears throat> real skills in learning now. I know the value of Torah. <clears throat> I know the value <clears throat> of every word of Torah. But I can't do it. But I've been thinking. It happens to be, unbeknownst to you, I was a very, very successful businessman. And I have literally 
wealth that's unimaginable to the average person. But I'd like to cut a deal with you. A Yisachar and Zvulun. Is that how you say that? Yisachar. I want to make a Yisachar and Zvulun deal with you. You learn, and we split the reward. And I'll pay you. For every hour that you learn, I'll pay you $1,000. And that's a deal. <clears throat> you learn. You can learn Gemara. I can't. <clears throat> you learn Gemara, and every hour that you learn, we split the reward in the world to come. And for every hour you learn, I pay you $1,000. And imagine that he's serious, and imagine that he has a wherewithal, and I just got the deal of my life. And I leave, I go, oh my goodness, $1,000 an hour. <clears throat> oh my goodness. Do you know what kind of energy I would spend in learning? <clears throat> my wife would push me out of the house, go, go, my kids would stop, let's go, everything, let's go, let's go, learn, hour after hour, week, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, I want to sleep only. There'd be, the Hasmud would be $1,000 an hour? I'd be the Masmid of the generation. Well, wait a minute. Uh, aren't I a uh, mamin? Don't I know it's a Pasuk? Hanechmodim mizav mipazrav, more valuable than gold, and the finest <clears throat> valuables? Don't I know the value <clears throat> of <clears throat> every word of Torah in the world to come? The answer is, yeah, that's true, but it's not money. <laughs> money is real. <clears throat> Meaning to say we are maminim and not maminim. We get it and we don't get it. <clears throat> 5%, 10%, 12%. We work on it, we get a little bit more clear, but it's ever in that state of <clears throat> not really understanding it. And now we can begin understanding <clears throat> the wisdom of Chazal. You see, when you sit down to that apple, to that pear, you're feeling something, not in a theoretical, abstract way. You're directly benefiting. Your Yetzirah, your animal instinct is benefiting. You, with the totality of you, both sides of you are benefiting. And when you thank Hashem for that, you're reaching a total cognition that Hashem is a giver. Why did Chazal create so many brachas? <clears throat> Why is it? Because that's one of the great opportunities to recognize the Chesed Hashem, but not in theory, not an abstract form way out there, right here, to feel it, <clears throat> to taste it, to be enveloped in all of the sensations, and then to say the words, I get it. Hashem is the mative. Hashem created this. But it's Bishnei Yitzrecha. It's not just my Neshama, <clears throat> it's my Nefesh Bahami. When Chazal say, <clears throat> Love Hashem with all, both of your hearts, you see, your neshama is great. And studying the world is wonderful, but you got to tap in to make it real. You have to tap into the Nefesh Bahami. <clears throat> you have to live it in your real life. And when you bite into an apple, <clears throat> when you eat a sandwich, you're being nene, you're benefiting, and it's real. And that's how you come to Avaz Hashem. You use Shnei Yitzrecha. And I believe that's also the answer to Moshe Rabbeinu. You see, what Hashem was saying to Moshe Rabbeinu was, the others saw me, but as great as they were, and they had faith, it was 90%. But it wasn't crystal clarity. You're going to see the redemption. You're going to see the Jewish people brought to Eretz Yisrael. You will experience the name of Hashem differently than the others. As clearly as the others saw it, it still remained in that vague, sort of unclear sense way, way above us, 85%, 90%, very, very clear, but never with total clarity. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, are going to experience Hashem with absolute clarity. You're going to see the fulfillment. And I believe what, what this Rashi is sharing with us is a fundamental concept. If a person wants to grow, it has to be real. You see, the theoretical emuna, 
the theoretical love of Hashem has to become palpable. It's got to become real. It's got to be something that you work on and something you experience in your life. And it's one of the strange things of living. Until you're in trouble, you don't know what bitachon means. Until you're deeply, deeply involved in a situation and you can't extricate yourself. And that's when you daven to Hashem and somehow things turn around and that's when you experience Hashem in a much more clear way. It's not enough to learn about it in the base medrash. It's not enough to, to learn about it in the musashir. You have to live in the thick and thin of life. You have to be there experientially because that's when you're living it with both Yitzrecha, not just your neshama, not just cognitively, but emotionally. Your nefesh Bahami is with you and both parts together get it. And ultimately, that's the only way a person can grow. Ultimately, that's the only way a person can reach any level. And ultimately, being a Torah Jew, being a from Jew, requires a tremendous amount of work. And it's not something that comes naturally. Loving Hashem doesn't just happen. Yiras Hashem doesn't just happen. It's something that requires a lot of work. And if you'd like to know the greatest exercise for growing in those areas, it's something called writing your own biography. I've said this many times, and it bears repeating, every Jew has a story. Every Jew has this happened and that happened, I met this one and that one. And if you study the biography of your life, if you study the events as they unfolded, and you begin to realize, oh my, that's Hashem, and that's Hashem, and that's Hashem, and you begin piecing together the pictures, all of a sudden, wow, you get a panoramic view, and you get an understanding that you never had before. But what it requires is contemplating, thinking, dwelling. A Jew has to stop the busyness. You have to sit down to an apple. You have to sit down to a banana. You have to sit down to a cucumber and say, this is delicious. <clears throat> what forethought, what care went into bringing this to me? Number one, the wisdom of the world. And number two, that Hashem wants me to benefit. Why does Hashem want me to benefit? Hashem derives nothing from it. Hashem has nothing to gain from it because Hashem is a mative. Hashem loves me. <clears throat> Hashem wants my success. And when you're eating, <clears throat> while it may look like a maisa behema, an act of like any animal in the animal kingdom, it might well be that, or it might be one of the holiest, greatest activities you could ever be engaged in. A maisa behema, the act of an animal, can be either like Elsie the cow <clears throat> or a baboon, or it can be a holy act that brings you closer to your Creator. And the key distinction is one, <clears throat> are you thinking, is your brain on on, do you know what you're doing? And if you ingest that food, <clears throat> if you take it to your lips, and you think about it, and you study it, and you recognize the wisdom, the care, the forethought of your Creator in bringing it to you, <clears throat> it brings you to a level of avas Hashem, of loving Hashem, <clears throat> makes you a great person. It's the same physical act, one is the act of an animal, the other one is the act of a malach, but that's what life is about. <clears throat> using the time, <clears throat> using the opportunities, <clears throat> using what Hashem gave us. This chazal is an eye-opening concept, because <clears throat> what Hashem was saying to Moshe Rabbeinu is, as great as the others were, they did not have your opportunity. <clears throat> You're being given an opportunity to see Hashem <clears throat> as Hashem really is. Neman l'shalim <clears throat> believed to pay back, they had faith, but only at the level they could have. You're going to see it experientially, and that's what a Jew has to do. 
<coughs> to come to a real relationship to Hashem, you have to recognize there's Avas Hashem and there's Yuras Hashem, two different mitzvahs. <coughs> Yuras Hashem is two components. <coughs> Number one, globally, Yuras Aromamus, studying the vastness of this creation, studying the complex systems, <coughs> seeing the majesty of it all, and saying to myself, if this is the creation, what does it tell me about my Creator? That brings me to a sense of awe of my goodness, and the capacity, the power, the brilliance of my Creator. But there's another level to your Shemayim, and that is knowing that I'm to be accountable. I'm going to be held accountable, and they're going to ask me, what did I do, <clears throat> what did I accomplish, and what did I do incorrectly? And knowing that Hashem is watching, knowing that it's not just an iPhone, <clears throat> it's not a video camera, it's a Kaddish Baruch Hu himself every day, all day with me, watching, measuring, hoping for my success, attempting, waiting, but measuring and weighing, that's the second part of Yerushalayim. And then there's a mitzvah called Avaz Hashem. Avaz Hashem also has two components. The global, looking at the wonders, looking at the kindness that Hashem invested to the world in general. But then there's the local part of it, eating that piece of fruit, benefiting from the beauty of this world, enjoying this world, and recognizing Hashem wants me to enjoy it because Hashem is a giver. And when I use Shnei Yitzrecha, both parts of me, my Neshama and my Nefesh Bahami, when I use both together, that's when I come to the real cognition, and that's when I come to the real understanding. Avaz Hashem requires a tremendous amount of work. Yiras Hashem requires a tremendous amount of work. But when a person focuses on it, when a person does it, when a person studies his own life, and sees the tremendous chesed that Hashem gives him on a constant basis, he reaches a level of Avaz Hashem, of Yerush Hashem, he becomes a true Ever Hashem. Hashem grant us the wisdom and the standing ability to put this into practice. And now I would like to open the floor um, to questions, to observations. If you have questions, uh, please feel free to use the question box that's um, on the GoToWebinar screen over here. You could type in any time the questions, uh, and um, the questions can be on any topic. I see all froze, came back. I see some, I can't hear you, wonderful. Um, audio dropped and came back again. Um, just lost audio, go. Um, okay, I hope it's a, a connection system. This this has been recorded anyway. It is, uh, I have an independent uh, recorder here, an independent video camera. So if there was part that got missed, um, you could pick it up. In any case, so if anyone has questions, please feel free to use the question box. And anytime, please feel free to send questions to Rebbe at theshmooze.com, R-E-B-B-E at theshmooze.com. Just put in the subject matter, you just put in the line questions on the schmooze, and you could ask questions on a- any topic. I will try in future sessions to address them. If you have any questions on tonight's topic or any topic in general, please feel free to use the question box. Um, if you don't have questions, it's also okay because it'll give me a chance to um, sort of uh, cool down because, again, this is, uh, for me, this is the second one of the day. The first one was this morning. I spoke to a group of about 100 teachers who were starting off the year, and my job was to give them inspiration to go out there and uh, and do their avodah Hashem, but it required a lot of uh, a lot of energy. So um, so I'm clearly, uh, I'm, I'm willing to stop. In any case, if you have a question, please feel free. You can ask a question on this year, on any year, any of the uh, the uh, any in the Chuvish series. Again, this is number three in the Chuvish series. There are five altogether. We're going to have one next week, and then there's the actual Chuvish moves. 
the actual Chuvish Moves is going to be live in Baltimore, in Lakewood, in Kew Garden Hills. Uh, it'll also be uh, a live webinar the day before Yom Kippur. And again, that's the fifth one in the series. So we have all the other five in the series. <clears throat> this is the third one in the series. If you haven't heard <clears throat> number one or number two, you can go on the schmooze.com. There's schmooze number 251, 252, <clears throat> and this evening was 253. In addition to which, if you signed up to the webinar, you'll get the, um, you should get the, um, you should get sent the, uh, <clears throat> the email with it uh, in addition. Okay. Um, okay. <clears throat> Wondering which sources was the shared tonight based on, please. Okay, I apologize that I did not give out the hand the handout. <clears throat> With the email, I'll send out the handout. It's actually based, <clears throat> the first Rashi is a Rashi in Shemos. It's in <clears throat> Vaera by the Sne when Moshe Benu appears by the Sne <clears throat> and Hashem says, uh, <clears throat> I appear to Avram Yitzhak Yaakov. It's actually, it's uh, Shemos, Perik Vov, Pasuk, Gimel, and the Rashi there. But the rest of the Rambam, the Rambam etc., I will be needed to send it out in a handout tomorrow with the email. So just look for the email, and hopefully you'll get the uh, both the original uh, Rashi and as well as the other uh, Mara Makomos. Um Okay, if you have any other questions, please feel free. Uh, just type them in over here. And again, it could be a question on this evening, question on other shurim we've had in the past. Okay, um, one more time, I just want to remind you, there is a Shmooz app as well as the, the shmooze.com, uh, as well as Kol Lushan. So if, you're, if you want, you can hear the shmooze in quite a number of ways. Again, either on the shmooze.com or the, the shmooze app, or in addition to which, uh, it's on Kol Lushan. And again, I hope you join us next week. There'll be the uh, number uh, four in the series, on the Chuva series. And uh, it will go out in the email tomorrow, and uh, it will be uh, posted on the site. I wish you much, much atzlacha. Um, will there be any webinars in the future? Uh, I would like there to be much more interactive webinars. I, I, last year I began learning Masil Shisharim um, in, interactively, and there we really it was a very interactive shear, and uh, it went for a good while, it went for half a year, but I got a little lonely. Um, and uh, if people are interested in that, I would like to, I would like to continue that, uh, that series, that type of uh, format. But... Uh, Again, it wasn't as popular as I was hoping it would be, and uh, so at this point, it's uh, temporarily uh, on on hold. But hopefully, <clears throat> hopefully, we'll bring it back. Okay. Once again, I thank you. <clears throat> I hope you'll join us next Monday night, eight thirty. Uh, again, if you're not able to join, then just to make sure you register for the webinar, and the next day or two, you'll receive the uh, archived copy of it. And again, in either case, they're available on the schmooze.com at Shmuz number 251, 252, and tonight's was 253. I wish you much continuous socha and a good, productive El. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.